to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Welcome to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Well, this has been some week for news. I hardly know where to begin. But I guess I'll start with the crazy story about the Iowa caucus on Monday. That would have been a big story in any case, a big deal, because all of the national press converged on Des Moines, Iowa, in order to cover the first votes in the 2020 election. But the excitement was followed by even more excitement that was caused by the big screw-up by the people who were supposed to report the returns and let everyone know who, in that huge group of candidates, who won. Well, it wasn't till much, much later that we found out. In fact, as of the time we recorded this show, we still weren't sure. So, there's that story. And then there was the end, well, almost the end, of the impeachment farce that began as a real, honest-to-goodness coup d'etat against President Donald Trump, even before he was president, before he took office. The terrible trio, Pelosi, Schiff, and Nadler, went down in flames as all their efforts to continue the sham trial against the president were defeated in the Senate. But that story is far from over, and I'll tell you why. They tried to recover and went on and on about the vote to remove the president from office, but to say that they weren't convincing was a big understatement. Altogether, this was not a great week for the Democrats. And then there was more news about the spread of the novel coronavirus, which is becoming a bigger story every day as it spreads almost unchecked in China, and the numbers in the rest of the world are continuing to grow more slowly. And then there's the story behind the story, which is basically that China has been lying to us from the beginning and is still lying. And while they are lying, people in China are dying. Also on Monday, we had some really bad news. Rush Limbaugh shocked his listeners with news about his health, and we'll talk about that. And then the president's deal of the century began running into some serious headwinds. We'll talk about that. And finally, the president came into his own with his State of the Union address on Tuesday evening. There's a lot to talk about today, so let's get started. By the time you hear this, you may already know, we all may already know, who won the Iowa caucus. (laughs) With 62% in on Tuesday afternoon, it looked like Pete Buttigieg was the lead. He had the most votes at 62%. Uh, But it's not clear that that was the final count. I mean, it wasn't the final count because it was only 62%. And it was going to be a number of hours before the final, final vote was in and counted. So in order to understand what happened, I'm going to try to explain it. The thing is, that Iowa has a unique system for voting in caucus. 
these are not the final elections, but these are the what in other states are called primaries. But this isn't a primary. You don't just go into a voting booth and cast your vote. It's a process. And Iowans are very familiar with it, and they take it for granted. They just take it in stride and do it. But the rest of the country finds this a very foreign procedure and a little bit, no, a lot complicated. So I'm going to try to explain it to you, and maybe, maybe it'll make some sense. What happens when you go to vote in a caucus? You don't go to a, a booth and fill in a ballot. You go into a big room, and a lot of other people are there, and everybody is there to support a particular candidate in your party. And the caucuses, by the way, are divided by parties. So in this case, the big caucus was the Democrat caucus, and there were so many candidates. So there were lots of groups. So you go into your caucus. Uh, the caucuses, by the way, are divided up geographically according to voting districts. So then you go into your, the, the caucus room, and this is a place where people are coming and they're talking about their candidates, and uh, usually uh, somebody will go up and, and talk about his or her candidate, and somebody else will go up and talk about another candidate, and everybody has the opportunity to speak for a candidate. And when everybody has spoken, uh, then there is the first round of, I guess, what everybody else would call ballots. And uh, when the ballots are counted, every candidate who wants to continue through this process must get at least 15%. Otherwise, they don't get to continue through another round of this. So the votes are counted. And all the candidates who did not meet the 15% threshold then drop out. And the people who support them have to go and support another candidate. And they will go and join another group whose candidate got at least 15% in the first round. The first wave, they call it. So then the, they go uh, and have another round. And uh, there isn't finally the people speak. And there's another round. Uh, and there's a lot of electioneering going on. And then there's another round of, of ballots. And... Uh, Again, there's a 15% threshold. Now, of course, the second time around, there isn't likely to be anybody who's below 15%. The, the, the people who join the other groups add to their numbers. So in the end, it's a matter of who wins the most votes in this process. And um, I, I know I've oversimplified it, but the point is that it's a very different process from what most of us are used to. Now, so, so what happened then is that the, the, um, the ballots are collected and they are recorded. They're put into this program. Now, this particular program was a product from a company called Shadow Inc. And Shadow Inc. has a connection to the Clinton machine. And that raises all kinds of other questions that we're not going to get into here. But just so you know, that's part of the picture. It was brought to Iowa to handle the votes of the caucus. And guess what? It didn't work. Now, 
there must be an explanation as to why this wasn't properly tested, why it didn't work. There was something wrong with the communications. It was it was a, a complicated problem for a complicated process. In any case, the results did not come in the way they were supposed to. Oh, and there then there was another thing, which was there was a rule change this year for the caucus, for the Democrat caucus, which was that instead of just counting one vote, they would count each wave of votes. And as a result, the communications got much more complicated, and this software just couldn't handle it for one reason or another. And on Monday night, people waited and waited, and we kept saying, we'll get the results soon. We'll get the results soon. This software was supposed to make it faster and easier and smoother, and it resulted instead in total chaos. So this is what happened. On Tuesday afternoon, 24 hours after the caucuses began, they still did not have a complete final answer to who won the caucus. At 4 o'clock local time, which was in Iowa is in on central time, so at 4 o'clock Central Time, they promised to have answers. What they had was 62% of the vote count. And it showed that Pete Buttigieg was the first. He was would have been the winner had it been 100%. And after him was Bernie Sanders. And after him was Elizabeth Warren. And after her was Joe Biden. And then the rest of them came in below that. But that wasn't the final tally. So there was a great deal of frustration and confusion and downright anger over the way this played out. And just for the record, on Wednesday morning at, at about 3 o'clock, they still didn't have the answers. They only had 70% of the precincts in. So they still had no answers. And the Democrats have egg all over their face. This is a disgrace. We are supposed to be, we in America are supposed to be an example to the world of how the electoral process works in a free society. And in this election, in this caucus, the first in the nation that the entire world is looking at, they screwed it up big time. So <laughs> that's the story of the Iowa caucus. We will eventually know who won. And maybe by the time you listen to this broadcast, you will know who won. But in the meantime, we still have to wait and see. That probably was the biggest story of the week because it was a big, big, disorganized, massively chaotic screw up. And the whole world was watching. We'll see how the Democrats work their way out of this. Did this software, for example, come out of the Clinton organization for a reason? There was no other software that they could have used that might have performed better? I don't know. I have no answers to that right now, but I may have some in the weeks that come. So stay tuned for this. This story is not over, not by a long shot. Now, by the time you hear this also, the impeachment spectacle will hopefully and finally be over.
at least this latest chapter will be over. And the problem, of course, is that the Trump derangement syndrome seems to be an incurable disease. And there is the belief among skeptics who have little faith that the Democrats will give up their quest and they will continue on the tawdry charade of trying to bring down the presidency of Donald J. Trump, even at this late date. What they're really interested in, and and Adam Schiff made this very clear in, in his final summation at the trial, when he said that the goal is to keep Donald Trump from running in the next election, in the 2020 election. They're not going to do it. There's too much opposition. And Donald Trump's grassroots following is enormous. Do you know, in the Iowa caucus, Donald Trump was essentially running on a post. And yet, 30,000 people came out to vote for him. This is, this is without precedent. He has a following every time he has a rally. Thousands, tens of thousands of people show up. In fact, in a recent rally in New Jersey, 173,000 people registered to attend. Now, there was only room in that hall for 7,400, but there were tens of thousands of people outside. And they had their own party celebrating their support for Donald Trump. It's amazing. It's just unprecedented in this country that any president would have that much of a following. Tens of thousands of people at every event that he holds. Well, anyway, the Democrats nevertheless seem to be deaf, dumb, and blind when it comes to understanding what the president's following is. So they run their own polls And their polls are inconclusive at best because they are frequently skewed. Depends on whom they ask, whom they poll, and also what the questions are and how they're phrased. So they're getting polls that show that the president is behind virtually every single candidate who is running on the Democrat side. And yet he draws tens of thousands of people to every rally. This is a grassroots movement, my friend. This is something that we are going to see very dramatically, I believe, in November 2020. This is going to be an election for the books. So I think it's going to be very interesting. The impeachment trial is over. President has been exonerated. Now they're going to talk about chastising him in some way or penalizing him in some way. They'll come up with something. They'll come up with something. And they may or may not be successful. Chances are they will not be successful. In fact, I would suggest that the closer we get to the elections, the less likely the Democrats are going to be successful in doing anything to hurt this president. As far as I can see, all of their efforts starting with the dossier, the Steele dossier, that was supposed to show how disgusting a person he was. That fell through the cracks. They broke the law in order to produce that and present it, but it didn't do any good. It was discovered that it was a fraud almost from the beginning. But the FBI broke the law in presenting it as evidence. So there was that. And then there was the Mueller investigation, and then there was the uh, telephone call between President Trump and President Zelensky. 
that the Democrats say proved beyond a shadow of a doubt his guilt. And yet there was no proof. There was no guilt. There was no crime. So then we had the impeachment trial, of course. First the hearings, the kangaroo court hearings that were run by Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler and Jerry Nadler. And altogether, it was a sham from beginning to end. Now, it's over. Well, it should be over. The impeachment trial is over. The president has been acquitted. And yet, the Democrats are not finished. This is Trump delusion at its very, very sickest. It's pathological. I think every one of the Democrats who subscribe to this need to go into therapy. But in the meantime, we are running up to what is looking like it's going to be one of the most exciting and interesting presidential elections in our lifetime. So stay tuned. I've got to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back to talk about China's latest gift to America. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Now, folks, I'd like to talk to you about something really serious. I'm talking about the coronavirus that everyone is talking about, maybe thinking about, but not taking too seriously because it's scary. It's hard to wrap your your brain around it because there's no cure. There aren't even proper diagnostics, but it's something that needs to be dealt with on a scientific level to keep us all safe. The reason it's so hard to talk about this is that we're not getting a straight story. Now, let me tell you right up at front, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. It's not that conspiracies don't exist. Of course they do. But I don't believe in spreading conspiracy theory unless it's a real conspiracy. This is something far worse. Because from the get-go, China has been lying to us. We are not getting the straight story from China. And anybody on our side of the ocean who is taking, believing, and swallowing whole what China is telling us is missing the boat and is frankly letting us down. So let me explain to you why I think China is lying and what it means. First of all, we're talking about a virus. This is not an ordinary virus. But I'm starting to come up with a number of experts who are suggesting, as I have mentioned at least a week ago, and probably more like two weeks ago, that this virus is engineered. It's a virus that didn't come out of a fish market or a, a 
an open-air meat market. It came out of a laboratory. Everything that I know about this, all the information that I have, suggests that this is a project that the Chinese have been working on as a weapon of war. The problem is, and it's been a big problem for China because it backfired. In the course of whatever it is they were doing in this laboratory, there was a laboratory accident. Perhaps a vial with this virus in it, this engineered virus, dropped and broke. And people who were in the, in the lab at the time carried it outside in one way or another. Now, that's the beginning. And once it's outside, this virus begins to spread rapidly, very rapidly, and starts infecting everybody that it comes in contact with. I'm told that this happened sometime in mid to late November. And by the end of December, tens of thousands of people have been infected and some have died in China. This happened in the city of Wuhan. And what the Chinese didn't tell us, but it was public knowledge, and we should have known, they have a level four biohazard lab there. And I've told you about this before. This, is, this should not be news. And in this biohazard lab, they were supposed to be studying, and I use that word in quotes, studying the SARS virus and Ebola. But it seems that they were doing more than just studying it. From all of the reports that I'm getting, this virus was a SARS virus that had been weaponized. Now, what it means when you weaponize something, you make it stronger, you make it easier to transmit, it's able to mutate more rapidly, and it can be, in many cases, much more deadly. Now, so far, what we've seen is that it is not more deadly than, for example, SARS. But the problem that we have, and this is the serious part, the problem that we have is that we don't know how many people have died or are dying in China. And there are several reasons for this. The first one is that China has a very bad system of record keeping. In order to verify that a person has died from this virus, they have to take a sample, send it off, have it uh, verified, and then get it back. And that takes several days. Now, when you have hundreds of cases, this just doesn't get done. And one of the things that we are being told about what's happening in China is that the coroners are simply saying, yeah, this one, breathing, breathing problems, this one is pneumonia, that one's pneumonia. And they don't go to the virus because it just takes too long. So they give it a generic diagnosis, diagnosis, and that's the end of it. Now, the problem here, that's one of the problems, is the record keeping. But there are other problems. And that is that the hospitals are simply overwhelmed. Now, we have seen photographs of vehicles laden with body bags, full and carrying down the street. And then there is a new phenomenon in the city of Wuhan. There is a dense smoke over the city, which indicates by suggestion that they're burning the bodies because they 
simply can't handle the load of burying them in any way that means handling them. This is a serious, serious problem in China, and this is just Wuhan. But most of China today is closed for business. Companies have closed. You know, China is shut down. China is under quarantine. And now one of the th other things that's happening, and the reason we don't have a proper count, is that people are being confined and quarantined to their homes, which means essentially they're being locked in. Now, what does that mean? That means that we don't know what's going on in those apartments. We don't know if the people inside are alive or dead, if they have the virus or they don't have the virus. We simply don't know. And this is happening in Wuhan to be, to be sure, but also it is starting to happen in other cities as well. This is a very serious epidemic, pandemic, I would say, in China. Now, we know that in Hong Kong, there have already been two dead. And you know, I, I told you last week that when Hong Kong first got the virus, it was from somebody who had been in Wuhan. And within two days of identifying that virus, they were in a state of emergency. Within two days. We thought they had problems in Hong Kong when they were demonstrating against the government. That was nothing. Now Hong Kong is also fighting this coronavirus. That's five million people who left the city. So then you get to the part about the economy. The economy is failing because the factories are shut. The schools are shut. Nothing is being produced. There was, to begin with, the threat of a famine. I told you about that several months ago. It had to do with the advent of the fall armyworm that ate up a huge amount of Chinese crops in southern China. Well, in addition to that, we now have this virus. This virus is, is all-consuming. I mean, people are terrified now. People, everybody wears masks, but the masks are not going to help everybody because people are already infected. You know, the city of Wuhan, for example, that was the epicenter. That was ground zero for this virus. And in Wuhan, people started seeing other people getting sick, and half of the population left the city before it went into quarantine. That's five million people who left the city. Now, those people are out there somewhere, some of them are infected, and some of them are passing it on. Now, Matt, maybe that is why China is facing this pandemic. It's serious, and the numbers we're getting are far from accurate. Now, I want to tell you about one other rumor that's been going around that I will bet anything is incorrect. And it was on a main national news program. And this, I want to talk about Maybe it's a rumor. Maybe it's misinformation. It's something I don't believe. And so I'm going to share it with you. You can use your own judgment as to you whether you believe it. It was that 632 patients have been successfully treated for the virus in China, and they've gone home. I don't believe it because I don't think the Chinese have cured anybody. It's possible that people came in with something else and they cured it and went home. But I don't believe it was the virus. 
And that would make sense because we know that the Chinese are not catching all the people who were infected with the virus, and they're misdiagnosing, and they're, mis, they're miscounting. So my guess is that this is not, in fact, a hopeful sign. It's just a rumor and probably a false one. Now, we have to come to the United States. I mean, the situation in, in China is horrendous, and it's getting worse. And China is not telling us what's going on, so it's very difficult for our doctors and our analysts and our, our, our scientists to really get a handle on this. So we're doing the next best thing, and I think we're doing it pretty well. We are quarantining anybody who either has been in China and has symptoms, or has been to the parts of China where we know the infections are rampant, and they are being quarantined, and so are the people they came in contact with. And we're talking about whole plane loads of people. A plane load of 250 people went to Travis Air Force Base in California and were quarantined immediately. Now, those people came in contact with other people in China. So they may or may not be carrying the disease. But we do know that this disease is highly contagious. And we know that it can be passed from human to human. Now, we've had two cases in this country where a person who had the infection transmitted it to another person. It happened in Chicago. And it now happened in California. So this is how it spreads from one to another. Now, what we're doing and why I said it was so it was being well done, is that we're isolating people as fast as we can identify them. And that's a good thing. Now, last week uh, in, in Boston, a person, I don't know if it was a man or a woman, got off the plane and was identified as somebody with a fever. And this person refused medical care and refused to be examined and walked off and disappeared into the crowd. Now, we don't know where that person is or with whom that person has come in contact. But we may hear about it one of these days. And in the meantime, the United States health agencies are doing everything they can to contain and quarantine where necessary anybody who either came in contact with a person who was known to have this virus or who was showing symptoms. This is going to be a story of our lifetime, you know, one of the big stories. This is either the pandemic that almost was, or it's going to be a story about a pandemic that was. And we won't know. The best thing we can do, the best thing you can do, is stay away from crowds, if you can. Make sure that you wash your hands frequently. Don't rub your eyes. Don't put your fingers in your mouth because that's how you contract this disease, through eyes and through mouth. And be careful. And if you feel that you are having symptoms, fever, difficulty breathing, this is, a, by the way, a respiratory virus, so eventually it will affect your lungs. And so if you have symptoms, cough, fever, difficulty breathing, and so forth, get yourself some medical help immediately. The next best thing is to self-quarantine. But you want to make sure that you don't have this virus. So this is really important. And this is something that you can help to protect yourself by just, you know, one of the things I think is, that is going to protect America to a great extent, much more than in China, is because we do have 
certain health protocols that we sort of take for granted. We, we have hand sanitizers everywhere. We have soap and water everywhere. And we have the capability. And, and we clean ourselves. We're not a dirty people. So uh, those protocols, those habits that we have of cleanliness are going to save us a lot of heartache by keeping us more resilient against this virus. This isn't a time to be afraid. We're not like that. We're Americans. We're tough. And we need to be tough. But we need to be aware of what we, what we have to do to stay safe. There are masks out there also. The surgical masks aren't really what you need. You need a mask that's called N99. That's what I've been told. And those N99 masks are the kind that can help protect you from inhaling the virus. You know, if the time ever comes when you need to wear a mask in order just to go outside, those are the ones you need to get. I'm, I'm hoping that all of you will be safe and secure and not get sick with this virus. Protect yourselves. Protect your families. Be aware that there is a threat and pray that it never comes, not to our door. Now, I want to just say a few words about somebody whom I respect very, very much. On Monday afternoon, I was out doing some errands. And I got back in my car a little before 4 o'clock. And I had been listening to Rush Limbaugh on the radio. And I turned on the car and the radio, of course, went on. And he was saying something that caught my attention. Here's what he said. He said, this day has been one of the most difficult days of recent memory for me. Because I've known this moment was coming. I can't help but feel that I'm letting everyone down on this. But the upshot is that I have been diagnosed with advanced lung cancer. Diagnosis confirmed by two medical institutions. I don't like making things about me. But there are days when I'm not going to be here. And he went on to explain that he would be coming in when he could. But he would be going in for treatments. And probably on those days he would not be broadcasting. Rush is one of my heroes. He's a broadcasting giant, a national talk radio. He has an audience of 20 million people. And he has shaped conservative politics for more than two generations. I wish Rush the very, very best. I pray for his health and a speedy recovery. Science has found some wonderful, wonderful remedies for some of the worst diseases, things that never gave us a chance before, but that people live through and go on and lead very fruitful lives. I wish that for Rush. Share your prayers. Let's keep a prayer chain going. Rush, our thoughts and prayers are with you. God bless. Now I'm going to take a short break so you can hear from the good people at America Out Loud. But I'm going to come back in a few minutes. And when I do, we're going to talk about the President's State of the Union speech. It was quite an affair. We had uh, the Democrats on one side and the Republicans on the other. And the President in the middle sharing his vision of America. With the shenanigans of Nancy Pelosi 
to entertain us. It was quite a show. Don't go away. I'll be right back. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio. On our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. On Tuesday evening... The president gave his annual State of the Union speech. The hall was packed, and with the joint House and Senate, and a gallery full of guests. Many of the Democrat women wore white, just like they did last year. I still don't understand what's the point. Were they trying to look pure and virginal? That would never work. It really looked like a cheap trick to attract attention for no particular reason. But there they were, so... When the president entered the hall, he shook hands as he walked towards the podium, and when he got there, he gave a copy of his speech in leather-bound folders to Vice President Mike Pence and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. They were both sitting in awkward silence next to each other on the dais. There was no conversation between them as they waited for the president. They just looked uncomfortable. Then there was another awkward moment when, after receiving the folder from the president, Pelosi looked as if she was extending her hand for a handshake, but he had already turned away and didn't see it. 
I think she was a bit insulted just the same, and maybe embarrassed because I guess she felt snubbed. I should note that the president didn't shake hands with Mike Pence either. Then the president began to speak, and his speech was excellent. He began by talking about the launching of the great American comeback. He talked about the accomplishments of his first three years in office, not just of the last year, but of the whole term. And if you look at what he has actually done, what he has accomplished, it is truly remarkable, particularly when you consider he did many of these things in spite of a Congress that not only refused to cooperate with him, but was actively trying to unseat him, to destroy his presidency so that he would be impeached rather than be able to complete his term. And he accomplished these things anyway. The list is long, and he listed quite a few of them. Here are some of the things he mentioned. He said, jobs are booming, incomes are soaring, poverty is plummeting, crime is falling, confidence is surging, and our country is thriving and highly respected again. America's enemies are on the run, America's fortunes are on the rise, and America's future is blazing bright. Do you know, when the speech was being promoted during the day, we were told that this was going to be a very low-key speech. It wasn't. He gave it in his low-key style, but that's about as much low-key as it was. It was a very powerful speech, and it started off being a very political speech. He referred to the previous administration or the previous administrations, and he contrasted those administrations with his own. In three short years, he said, we have shattered the mentality of American decline and we have rejected the downsizing of America's destiny. We are moving forward at a pace that was unimaginable just a short time ago, and we're never going back. And he was right. Look at what has been accomplished in the last three years. And he, here's how he described it. I'm thrilled to report to you tonight that our economy is the best it has ever been. Our military is completely rebuilt, with its power being unmatched anywhere in the world, and it's not even close. Our borders are secure, our families are flourishing, our values are renewed, our pride is restored, and for all these reasons, I say to the people of our great country and to the members of Congress before me, the state of our union is stronger than it has ever been before." Unquote. He also talked about how, since his election, 7 million new jobs have been created, 5 million more than were projected during the previous administration. And he talked about unemployment. The average unemployment rate is lower than any administration in the history of our country. And then he talked about the unemployment rate for women, which has reached the lowest level in almost 70 years. And in the last year, when so many jobs were created, that there were actually millions of jobs that were going begging because there weren't enough people to fill them, 72% of all the new jobs that were created were filled by women. Now, you would think that the Democrat women who are so 
deeply involved in women's rights and, and the women's movement, you would think that this kind of a figure would be something that they would stand up and cheer for. It was amazing to me that the Democrats who care or say they care so much about rights and, and benefits for women, the Democrat women did not applaud for this statement. They did not stand. They did not even smile. It kind of makes you wonder about where their commitment really lies. Is it with the people they claim to want to, to help? Or is it to their party? Or is it against the president? Do they hate the president so much that they will not applaud for the accomplishments of the women that they represent? The president didn't stop there. He talked about the growing employment opportunities for the young. Workers without a high school diploma, he said, have achieved the lowest unemployment rate recorded in United States history, and a record number of young Americans are now employed. And then he talked about food stamps. He mentioned that during the last administration, more than 10 million people were added to the food stamp rolls. I remember stories about how government employees were going out to the poorer sections of West Virginia, for example, and trying to convince people to sign up for food stamps. But then he said, during the last three years, 7 million people have come off food stamps, and 10 million people have been lifted off welfare. Now, that doesn't mean that they were kicked off food stamps or kicked off welfare. It means they had jobs. They had a way of supporting their families. They didn't need food stamps anymore. They didn't need welfare. And then he talked about how, during his administration, three and a half million working-age people have joined the workforce. It's not enough because there were seven million jobs going begging, but it's a lot. He talked about how our roaring economy, as he described it, has made opportunity for veterans and even convicts to find work and to rebuild their lives into something better than it would have been otherwise. And he talked about manufacturing, how the previous administration had said that manufacturing was gone and wasn't coming back, and how Nevertheless, in his administration, 12,000 new factories had been built and were operating. Now, I'm not going to go through everything he said and all the things he talked about. The big things that he was really excited about were the trade deals. The USMCA, for example, which was a brand new trade deal between the United States, Mexico, and Canada. Or the trade deal that he made with China. These are these are big deals because they are going to add hundreds of thousands of jobs and they're going to increase trade so that our producers can sell our products abroad. He estimated that the USMCA will create nearly 100,000 new high-paying American auto jobs and will boost exports for our farmers and ranchers and factory workers and that it will also bring trade with Mexico and Canada to a much higher level with a greater degree of fairness and reciprocity, and that was very important to him. And he also talked about using tariffs as leverage 
for getting fair deals. And it has worked for him and for us. And then he talked about defense and how we have invested $2.2 trillion in the United States military during his term in office. How we have purchased the finest planes, missiles, and rockets, and ships, and every other form of military equipment that are all made in the USA. And then he talked about something brand new and very exciting. He talked about the creation of a new branch of the United States Armed Forces, the Space Force. And he introduced his first guest, 13-year-old Ian Lanfier. He's an eighth grader from Arizona, and he always dreamed of going to space. He wants to go to the Air Force Academy, and then he wants to join the Space Force. He quoted this child as saying, quote, most people look up at space. I want to look down on the world. Sitting with Ian, the president said, is his great hero, Charles McGee, who was born in Cleveland 100 years ago. Charles was a hero in his own right, not just in the eyes of his great-grandson. Charles was one of the last surviving Tuskegee Airmen, the first black fighter pilots. And after more than 130 combat missions in World War II, he went on to serve America in Korea and Vietnam. So the president announced that he had signed a bill promoting Charles McGee at the age of 100 to the rank of Brigadier General. And he himself, the president, pinned the stars on his shoulders in the Oval Office. It was an amazing moment. And then the president began introducing his guests. And what was interesting was that he tied each guest to a program that he was sponsoring in one way or another. So his next guests were Janiah and Stephanie Davis. Janiah is a fourth grader from Philadelphia, and her mom, Stephanie, is a single parent. The president explained that last year she wanted to go to a school of her choice that was better than the school she was assigned. But last year in Philadelphia, the governor vetoed legislation to expand school choice for 50,000 children. And so Janiah missed the opportunity that she would have had had there been more children included in this program. Now, the president announced that an opportunity scholarship was made available for Janiah and that she will soon be heading to the school of her choice. The joy in her eyes and in her mother's eyes was beautiful, but that wasn't all. The president tied that to his call for Congress to give one million American children the same opportunity. He wants to pass the Education Freedom Scholarships and Opportunity Act because he said no parent should be forced to send their child to a failing government school. Then he started talking about the big pharmaceutical companies. Now that's a big deal. Pharmaceuticals are getting more and more expensive and less and less affordable. People who need medicine are not able to get it because in many situations they can't afford it. So the president promised that his administration is going to be taking on the big pharmaceutical companies. They have approved a record number of affordable drugs 
that are going to be approved by the FDA at a faster rate than ever before. One of the biggest complaints about the FDA is that it takes forever and huge amounts of money to get a drug approved. And so the president was happy to announce, he said that for the first time in 51 years, the cost of prescription drugs actually went down. Now, you know, this list of accomplishments is growing quite long, and it's impressive. And then he had a very special moment. He said this, Here tonight is a special man, someone beloved by millions of Americans, who just received a stage 4 advanced cancer diagnosis. And he introduced his friend, Rush Limbaugh. He thanked him for his decades of tireless devotion to our country. Rush is a patriot, and he has been on the radio for many years, and he has 20 million listeners. 20 million, imagine. He said, thank you for your decades of tireless devotion to our country, and in recognition of all that you have done, the millions of people a day that you speak to and inspire, and all the incredible work that you have done for charity, I am proud to announce tonight that you will be receiving our country's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. You know, there were a lot of very moving moments on Tuesday night. The president introduced Ellie and Robin Schneider. Ellie was a little two-year-old sitting on her mother's lap in the gallery. Ellie was a premature baby, born so early that they didn't think she would survive. She was 21 weeks and six days, and she weighed less than a pound. But she was kept alive through the skill of her doctors and the prayer of her parents. And the president said that she reminds us that every child is a miracle of life, and that thanks to modern medical wonders, 50% of very premature babies delivered at the very hospital where Ellie was born now survive. So he wants to ensure that other babies like Ellie will have the best chance to thrive and grow. And that's why he said he's asking Congress to provide an additional $50 million to fund neonatal research for America's youngest patients. And that is why, he also said, he is calling upon the members of Congress to pass legislation finally banning the late-term abortion of babies. He said, surely we must all agree that every human life is a sacred gift from God. Once again, the Democrats were silent. The president spoke about so many topics that I couldn't begin to list them all or to tell you all about them. But what I can tell you is that he spoke from the heart and he spoke about the things that he cared about. And he ended by saying this, Our spirit is still young. The sun is still rising. God's grace is still shining. And my fellow Americans, the best is yet to come. Thank you. God bless you. God bless America. It was a good speech. It was an honest speech. He didn't apologize for his positions. In some way, you might say he was somewhat defiant. I would say he spoke about the principles that he believed in, and he applied those principles to his plans for the coming year. I'm sure it made the Democrats very angry. Well, there is a little footnote to the ending of this State of the Union speech, and that is that after he was finished giving it, 
and while the audience was applauding, behind him, on the dais, Nancy Pelosi stacked the sheets of his speech neatly and tore them in half. It was a petty act. It was an act that was rude and crude and totally inappropriate in the circumstance. And it was a poor ending to an outstanding speech. Thank you, Mr. President, for reminding us how fortunate we are to be living here in the United States of America. Well, that's it for today. I have run out of time completely. So I hope you have a good week, and I look forward to being with you again next week. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been the Friedman Report. 